Good morning, everyone uh, from Delhi. It's a nice cold morning, lots of fog outside. Uh, what I want to share with you this morning, as I put in the title, it was about fatherhood. And I want to talk about a person that we don't often associate with fatherhood, uh, which is uh, Mordecai. So we're all uh, familiar with the uh, story of Esther. Uh, we know it happens in Persia. Uh, we know it happens under King Xerxes and how it began because King Xerxes was holding a party. And the context was that he wanted to convince his nobles to join him in a war against the Greeks. And uh, we know that he was also familiar, uh, phenomenally rich. Uh, we read that the, in the Bible that he had the gardens of hanging white and blue and silver rings and uh, mosaic pavement. And uh, when Alexander the Great entered uh, Susa about a century later, he found the equivalent of, in today's money, of about $54.5 billion and 270 tons of minted gold coins. So basically, there was a lot of money, there was a lot of wealth, and Xerxes was promising this to anyone who would support him. And then we read that at the end of that party, on the seventh day, he asked the queen, when he has an after party, to come into his pretty drunk crowd, and that's how the story begins. Uh, <clears throat> And it's in this culture that we meet Mordecai. And I just share that as a background. Right? What was Mordecai doing here? In 586 the BC, BC, the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem and deported around 10,000 of the city's elite. Uh, then in 539, the Persians sacked the Babylonians. And by the time we meet Mordecai in this story and Esther, the Jews had been in Persia for three generations and were over a thousand uh, miles from Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine that any of them could remember life in their homeland uh, in Jerusalem. And those who wanted to return had returned with uh, Zerubbabel or Ezra. So those who remained like Mordecai had chosen to remain, right? And exile had been good to them. They had All they had to do was fit in, abide by the rules, blend into the culture, and Mordecai was one of these. And perhaps the question for us this morning is, are we too sometimes bought into that temptation to blend in, hide our identity? Or do we, how do we as God's people today in a similarly godless culture, how do we stand in, stand out, uh, to be in the world but not of it? And that's the question. And then we know the story continues uh, Xerxes is lonely. He decides that he, you know, he'll have a beauty parade to choose another queen. Uh, about four years have now passed since he banished Vashti, and uh, he lost his uh, war in Greece. And he's tired. Uh, he's weary, and uh, so he has this beauty parade. And estimates say that there were anywhere from four hundred to fourteen hundred. Uh, candidates for the role of queen. And we tend to read that today through sanitized eyes. But in reality, what these girls were all there for was to entertain him. And uh, all their dreams and aspirations that they had would be abandoned. Uh, if they were not selected, they would spend the rest of their lives as one of his concubines. Any children they had would serve the court, but not be considered heirs to the throne. And into this mess comes Mordecai and his niece Hadassah. 
And to a Jew reading this, this would immediately raise eyebrows. What was Mordecai himself doing living in Susa? Most Jews, even if they had remained in Persia, tried to live far away from the heart of the Persian power and politics. But Mordecai not only lived there, but he was on duty at the palace, we read, and he worked for Xerxes. He was on the payroll of the king. We'll see, of course, that God's sovereign in all this. But at this time, Mordecai even has a pagan name. Mordecai was an adaptation of Morduk, a Persian male deity. Uh, how come had this happened? And he asked Esther to follow suit. We read that Esther's name was Hadassah, which comes from the Hebrew word of myrtle, implying righteous. But she's called Esther in deference to the Persian goddess Ishtar. And uh, we see that Esther too in chapter 2 has not revealed her nationality or her family background because Mordecai has forbidden her to do so. So, so far as we look at it, Mordecai's answer to our question as to how to live in a faithless world is one of disguise and compromise. And this compulsion to hide identity continues to come to each one of us. Obviously not in Persia, but at work, at school, uh, wherever we go, until the time comes when we have to figure out who we are and what our identity really means. And perhaps for some of us, even this morning, the question may be, is it time for us to come in from the cold? Do we need to out ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ? For Mordecai, that moment comes when he's asked to bow to him and, and he doesn't. Uh, this is again probably five years later since Esther's become queen. And life is, continues to be good for them. They continue to keep the identity a secret. But then Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And the reason was that there was a deep-seated genera generational animosity between the Agagites and the Jews from the time they were, had been in the wilderness. Saul, you remember, had been asked to destroy them but he had disobeyed. And now because Mordecai refuses to bow down to this enemy of God's people, his camouflage comes off. And Haman, of course, we know goes ballistic. And history has many similar moments that it can tell us. We remember a few years ago, those Egyptian Christians who were beheaded because they refused to recant their faith. Bonhoeffer was killed because he refused to submit to Hitler. And while hopefully such life-threatening uh, challenges may not come to us, we all have these moments of uh, faith where we have to take a stand. And how we react depends much on what we've decided beforehand, where we've drawn the line in the sand in our own minds before that. Mordecai refused to bow and determined that he would never bow. And as fellow exiles in a world that is, again, not the one that we are uh, to finally to live in, may the Lord help us also to declare identity and take a stand when needed. But the main thing that I want to look at this morning is Mordecai as the father. Note that Mordecai is not a father by choice. He is an adopted father. Uh, maybe Mordecai was a single dad, we don't know, his wife's never mentioned. 
And I can relate to Mordecai because like Mordecai, I too am a father, an adopted father, father by choice. But I believe the Lord would have challenged all of us this morning, and I think most of us are fathers, whether we're biological or adoptive. Are we fathering each day by choice? And as we look at statistics, the impact of a father on a child's spiritual life is very, very important. It's almost disproportionate. We, the, while our wives and mom, their moms spend so much more time with them, the impact of a father on the life, spiritual life is all disproportionate. And so I want to leave with you two or three thoughts this morning, that good fathers keep deciding to be fathers. Mordecai decided to be a father. Somehow, this is how it ended up. The little girl was left with no mother or father. And he could have said, look, I'm not cut out to this. I'm not a good dad. Uh, maybe we'll just send her to Jerusalem or let's find someone else. But he says, I'll do it. I'll raise this child. And he made a decision to be a dad. And for most of us, I guess, who have children, uh, you know, by the time our child is born, our wives and their moms know them because they've been carrying them for nine months. But for us as fathers, fatherhood really starts that first time we actually hold them in our hand, right? And uh, and we're signed off. At least for me, I was quite shocked the first time I held that, my daughter in our hands, right? And you wonder, like, you know, I'm going to be a dad. Can I do this? And today, unfortunately, in our world, you know, being a father has got separated from fatherhood. We have some, you know, well-known names like Elon Musk who have 10 children and uh, so many others in different places with different people. But, and that's not fatherhood. But what fatherhood is, is the essence of the decisions of making that child, growing them up. And Stephen Covey says that every day fathers drive home from work and make that decision. Some do, some don't. He says that the wisest way to use our time from getting back from work is to make the decision once again to be a father to our children, to adopt our children, be a dad, mentally go through the process of taking off our work hat and putting on our father hat. And, uh, and I don't know what that means to you personally, but it means making that mental shift and I often fail, uh, but that's what we find Mordecai did. He decided to be a father. And then let's look at one more characteristic of Mordecai as a parent. Let's look at the built-in character of Mordecai. Because if you know the whole story of Esther, the story revolves around the fact that Esther is now going to display courage that will save her nation, right? Uh, Haman has uh, put out an order to annihilate the Jews. Uh, Mordecai gets to know about it. He tells Esther. And uh, and then, of course, he tells her that she needs to go into the king and uh, take it up with him. But where does she get this character from? A crisis does not develop character. Crisis only reveals character. <coughs> Crisis reveals the character that is already within us. And let me tell you the second part. Character is not taught. Character is caught. Children catch character from us. Uh, 
children, as we, when I was a child, and even today, children don't like lectures, right? We never really enjoyed our dad telling us, uh, taking us aside and saying, okay, I'm gonna tell you what you got to do. But what we do is we catch character. And so the question I would ask is what character has, did we catch from our fathers? What character has our children caught from us? Apparently Esther did catch some courage because we know the end of the story. And we know how that uh, uh, she goes into the king after weeping and fasting and uh, and Mordecai weeps and fasts. And then of course, as, uh, Mordecai tells her that perhaps you become a queen for such a time as this. Think about it. It was not easy for Mordecai to send his beloved Esther into the throne room of the king because we know that had the king not raised his scepter, then it would have been off with her head. And it's still not easy for us today. It's not easy for us to send our children into the world, uh, whether it's school or college or work. We worry over them. We want to protect them, right? But Mordecai knew that there was a time in each life, in a child's life, where the child matures and he or she needs to find her purpose, which begs the next question. What is the purpose that you and I are challenging our children to? Researchers say that uh, dads tend to see the, their child in relation to the rest of the world, whereas moms see the rest of the world in relation to their children. But what is the purpose that we are preparing them for, equipping them for? Are we helping them to have great dreams for the kingdom? Are we equipping them for that? Are we challenging them to think great thoughts about God and his church? Are we equipping them for that time when we release them and then we back off and let the archer shoot them to their destiny? That's what Mordecai did. Esther knows the risks. She knows that she can't just walk into the king's throne room, even though she's his wife. Uh, and so she tells all the people and men in Persia uh, and women to pray and fast for three days. So good fathers challenge their children to live for a purpose. And then we know what happens on the fifth, third day, she puts on her royal robes. Uh, she stands in the inner court and uh, she smells good. She looks good. She knows the way to Xerxes' heart. And, uh, and she doesn't just barge in. Uh, and he's pleased. And so he says, come in. What do you want? You know, up to half my kingdom. So we see that Esther's learned to push all the right buttons. There's wisdom in her approach. And she says, well, you know, I want to have a banquet with you and invite Haman as well. And, uh, and so Haman's invited. There's a party. And again, at the end of that party, he asks her, what do you want? And she says, well, I want to have another party. And you know what happens next. Haman ends up dead. The Jews are saved. And Mordecai is elevated to Haman's position. And so before I close, I just want to leave with one last point. If you look at the end of the book of Esther, it says that Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. 
in Proverbs uh, 10 and 11, we read that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Mordecai was such a man. Mordecai was this righteous man. A man who, when he did well, his people rejoiced. And I think that's the prayer that I would have also for each one of us. So often God has placed us in uh, places of authority, of, uh, of uh, influence. And yet as Christians, we can so often, we keep our nose clean. We, we you know, follow God in our work. Uh, we, uh, we don't want to dishonor him. But we don't use our positions for the big, greater good. We don't see how that we can be used so that we can accomplish and expand the kingdom of God uh, where God has placed us. Right? And uh, Tim Keller in a sermon explains that these righteous are people who follow God's heart and ways and see everything that they have as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purpose. Keller writes, the righteous in the book of Proverbs are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of the community. And that's what we see, the difference between Mordecai and Haman. And, uh, and that's what makes this otherwise uh, you know, statement so, which sounds sense, that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Typically, when someone does well, everybody else is, uh, you know, upset. I know at work, whenever the appraisals and the increments are released, it's always who got more and then everybody else who got less is upset. But here we find that instead of resentment, there's rejoicing. Because people like Mordecai don't see their prosperity as a means of self-enrichment, but as a vehicle of blessing to others. Mordecai did that for his people. Everyone benefited from his success. And we see then that everyone cheers. May we and I may not be second in command to the king, but God has given us each one significant areas of influence. And those around us, my question is, do they rejoice on our account? And the term rejoicing is a term that's used when, like last night, when the Argentinians won the World Cup. That's the kind of term that is used in the Bible, that euphoric rejoicing. And so my prayer this morning, and the word I believe God has for us today, is to be fathers by choice, to be fathers who challenge our children to live by, to a purpose, to give have character that they pick up from, and be those that the world around us would rejoice because of what God is doing in and through us. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that your word would do what you have sent it to do. Pray, Lord, that we would be men of character, uh, men of wisdom. Lord, fathers who uh, reflect the Heavenly Father well, Lord. Pray that we would be those who our children could look up and from whom they would see traits of you. I commit each one on this call to your care and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.